God, we thank you for your word that arrests our imaginations, comforts us in our deepest need, and provides hope for our lives. We ask that you would help us to make connections with what we read. We ask that you'd help bridge the gap between our understanding and truth, that we may be people that are yours, living in the light of your resurrection. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Mark Twain once wrote, Go to heaven for the climate, hell for the company. What do you reckon? Um, heaven, place for um, pie in the sky when you die, does it matter what heaven's like? I sometimes wonder that in the age in which we're in. People are a lot less interested in heaven than I think they used to be. Um, life's about now, isn't it? So what, what, what's the big deal about heaven? Isn't it just a place for people, for people that like singing? And not just singing. I mean, soporific kind of singing where the central heating's been on, left on a bit too long. And people just sing and sing and sing and it's a bit soporific. And what do you think of heaven? What's your image of heaven like? Today, today in our galloping tour of Revelation, we arrive at chapter 5, but we pass through the open door of chapter 4. And I'd really encourage you to get your Bibles open as we look at this, so that we can begin to grapple with the, the different images, the different possible ways of, of reading this, so that we might see our lives in the light of the resurrection. We start then at chapter 4. We're going to come on our chapter is 5, but chapter 4 is where I want to start. And chapter 4 is a bit like a building. It's, a, it's about God's throne. Chapter 4 reminds me, um, it's called the vision of worship in heaven in our Bibles. And you can see that um, you, in, you get introduced to the, the, the creatures and the elders falling down in front of the throne who say, holy, holy, holy. But that reminds me, chapter 4 of Revelation, reminds me of a time we took some young people to Ely Cathedral. It was a rave in the nave, I think it was about 2002, 2003. They were a mixed bunch of kids, i.e. in the sense that some I knew better than others and some had definite church connections and some hadn't a clue about things. And I want, I'll never forget one, one of the boys, one of the teenagers, as the door, the great west door of Ely Cathedral was opened, and he looked inside and he saw the wonder of the building, but also filled with motorbikes and drums and, and, uh, cold, um, dry ice and whatever. He could not stop himself but express an expletive. John doesn't do that. But John does something similar in his struggle to articulate the wonder of what he's seeing and the privilege of him as a Jew to have this glimpse of heaven, this glimpse of God, God's realm. Let's read some of it. Verse 2 we'll come in on. At once the Spirit took control of me and there in heaven I saw a throne and someone sitting on it. The one who is sitting there sparkled like precious stones of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne. Twenty-four other thrones were in a circle around that throne. 
And on each of these thrones was an elder dressed in white clothes and wearing a golden crown. Flashes of lightning and roars of thunder came out from the throne in the center of the circle. Seven torches, which are the seven spirits of God, were burning in front of the throne. Also in front of the throne was something that looked like a glass sea, clear and crystal. Around the throne in the center were four living creatures, covered front and back with eyes. The first was like a lion, the second like a bull, the third had the face of a human, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and their bodies were covered with eyes. Day and night they never stopped singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God all-powerful, who was and is and is coming. It is a majestic scene. It's an awesome scene of God's throne room. A throne speaks to us of accountability. A throne speaks to us of power. And just to emphasize that, we have it in 3D Technicolor. There's lightning and thunder coming from the throne. Then one of the elders said to me, we remember that there was elders and there's different understanding as who the elders are, but 24 elders, I would suggest, would might represent the 12 tribes of the Old Testament. There's also 12 apostles in the New Testament. 24 elders surrounding the throne. And I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, luminous light of carnelian, jasper and emerald. And the four creatures symbolize the strongest and best of nature. Creatures similar to the, the book of Ezekiel, another apocalyptic type literature where they represent the whole of creation taken together. And they say, holy, 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 echoing the words of Isaiah 6. You alone are holy. God is worshipped here in chapter 4. Why? Because as you see what they sing in verse 8 and verse 11, because you are the everlasting one. Because you have created all things, verse 11. So here in chapter 4 is an awesome cathedral of praise. And yet one where God is distant, almost invisible. What place for us as a human race in such an image? Maybe a bit like Ely Cathedral without a congregation. So as we turn to our passage in chapter 5, this is where we see the human story as central in that environment. Chapter 4, I think, sets the scene for chapter 5. Because chapter 5 is the pivotal chapter in the book. After chapter 5, when the Lamb comes and opens the seals, we have the trumpets, we have God's wrath, all because of what happens in chapter 5. Therefore, this action is pivotal. The focus is no longer on the throne of God, but is on the Lamb. God is no longer distant and far off, but a self-revealing and suffering God in chapter 5. And in the midst of this, John is brought to tears. Chapter 5 says, In the right hand of the one sitting on the throne, I saw a scroll that had writing on the inside and out. It was sealed in seven places. I saw a mighty angel ask with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll or see inside it. I cried hard. I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll 
Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Echoes from the Psalms. Then one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Look, there is one. One who's called both the Lion from the tribe of Judah and King David's great descendant. He has won the victory. He will open the book and its seven seals. What is the scroll? There are several possibilities at this. It could be John's Bible. Greek is quite similar in that kind of way. That there's no one to interpret. Or the book of life. Later we meet in Revelation the names of the saints. But I think it's the, it's the story of humankind. It's our, our stories before us, after us, and of us that's there. The book of human destiny. And there's seven seals on that. A seal indicating the document was guaranteed for its authenticity and reliability. And John is moved to tears because no one can make sense of the human story. No one can realize the justice that is crying out in our world. No one can hold together the threads and the contradictions and the tensions of this world. We have words in Ecclesiastes, all is meaningless until Christ comes. And so the elder says, do not weep, see the lion of Judah, the root of David has conquered. He can come and open the scroll. And it's dramatic. The drama, the pathos of this. You imagine the spotlight turning, looking for this warrior king. This whose moment has now come to step into the bright light, the spotlight. The drum roll. The lion. And we see a lamb standing, looking as if it had been slain. Clearly like in chapter 1, this is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ dead and resurrected. As we think of that scene, it made me think the triumphal entry of Jerusalem. We celebrate it at Easter. We wait for Jesus to come in and take on Jerusalem and he enters on a donkey. A lamb standing as if it were slain. Impossible. He'd been slain and yet standing. Two things at the same time. Dead and alive. Sacrifice and judge. Punishment. Priest and sacrifice. Son of man and son of God. And John in his language here uses language that the Jews would recognize for the Passover. That's why in some other translations it has was slaughtered as the Passover lamb would have been slaughtered as a sacrifice. Because as the blood of the lamb set the Jews free, so the blood of the lamb of God, Jesus, sets God's people free from sin. Jesus is the Passover lamb. That is what is being said in this passage. Incredible. Foolishness to some, because in Corinthians, Paul writes, we proclaim Jesus nailed to the cross, an offense to Jews and folly to Greeks. Yet those who are called, it is the power and the wisdom of God. At the moment of seeming utter defeat and apparent failure, has turned out to be the most decisive moment in history. This is no ordinary lamb. This lamb has seven horns, which as we'll see next week, horns are to do with political power. We will discover that seven is is a complete number. The eyes 
are all over, so recognize all knowing, all seeing, to search and to know all things. The Lamb went over and took the scroll, I'm in verse 7, from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. After he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders knelt down before him. Each of them had a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Then they sang a new song. You are worthy to receive the scroll and open its seals because you were killed and with your own blood you were bought for God. You bought for God. The Lamb is worshipped by the living creatures and the elders. He not only opens the scroll, but stands and receives the worship of all of creation. Interesting to notice, though, the distinguishing marks of this Lamb. The distinguishing marks are not of divine glory, but of weakness and death. If in chapter 4, the Lamb is worshipped as Creator and the Everlasting One, so in chapter 5, the Lamb is worshipped because he, because he has died, because he is the ransom for many. That is the reason, as you look at verse 9 and 12 of chapter 5, you're worthy. If in Revelation 4, God was somehow distant, here in Revelation 5, because of why the Lamb has been killed, God can no longer be seen in that way. God has heard the cries of the earth, the poverty, the violence, the despair, the suffering of the human race matter to God. Yes, God has heard these cries and has responded in a way unimaginable. Through becoming part of his creation, by submitting to death and so experiencing death, and yet without sin. And now God takes that suffering into the Godhead. That is remarkable. The Lamb standing as if it was slain is now part of the Godhead in chapter 5. God himself has been altered by what happened when Jesus died. There's nothing more mysterious, scary, or tremendous in this book of Revelation than the mysterious wonderment of the depth of God's love. Don't be put off by things that might seem unusual. Recognize the triumphant story for what it is of Jesus, the resurrected one, the one by whose death and resurrection he has won the victory. That's fine, but I'm getting a wee bit religious with that language. What about us again? What about us as the, as the human project of God? What about me? Did you notice in that chapter the place that we have? Did you see in verse 8 of chapter 5, our prayers are part of that celebration. Mind-blowing stuff this is. Yes, when it says saints, that means of Christians, of people that pray. You and me are part of this. The prayers are brought before God and the Lamb to sing their praise but also with the purpose that God may use the prayers in the government of his universe. The other thing that's relevant for us in our lives, in its challenge, in its everydayness, is to recognize that this description of Christ's victory, ultimate victory, in chapter 5, 
over sin, death, and the devil doesn't come at the end of the book, but comes halfway through and repeats itself. To enjoy victory in the midst of calamity is one of the most baffling and challenging aspects of the Christian faith. We think back to times such as South Africa, where there's the, or places, other places of oppression where people are being held down. We believe in a God who will set people free. Freedom is coming. Oh, yes, I know. I believe there'll be a day when all things will be put to right. I believe that your power is only given by God. I believe in a higher power than you. I believe in the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, who will judge all people. That's my God. That's who we believe in as Christians. We believe that goodness is stronger than evil. Light is stronger than darkness. Love is stronger than hate. So faith does not wait for God's sovereignty to be established on earth. It behaves as if it is already there. It's subversive in that fashion. We could become highly supercilious people or um, judgmental people or too heavenly minded to be of earthly goods. And yet as we read this passage and see the compassion that God has on his creation, let us too live that way. As God hear the cries of the oppressed and the afflicted, let us too live that way. If God has shown such mercy on us, may mercy be the first thing that we show in our relationship with others as we live out our faith. As we open our eyes and ears to God at work, may we not limit God and God's ways of working. May we see what God is doing in our world and work with God. Whether it be, whether we understand it, whether it be in our church, let's work with God wherever and whatever God's up to. For God's name is to be praised. Verse 13. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering the throne, surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they sang with full voice. The beginning of a grand scene, a finale, John looking and hearing the voices of an infinite number of angels, the four living creatures who symbolize the strongest and the best of nature, and together with the faithful people who number thousands upon thousands. Imagine that song being sung at full volume, all of nature singing it as it sings it at this time of year. People down the ages, people past, people present, singing with us God's song. And the singing says, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, grant us your peace. Let's pray. Vulnerable God, you challenge the powers and authorities that rule this world. 
You challenge them through the needy and the compassionate. And those filled with longing for justice help us to be single-minded in seeking peace so that we may see your face and be satisfied in you. In the glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.